We Time meets Me Time, where magic meets the sea on a Disney cruise. Adults can relax and enjoy dedicated spaces designed just for them. Indulge in a massage at Census Spa or take a dip in Quiet Cove, an adult exclusive pool. Don't worry, the kids are having some me time of their own at incredible kids clubs. And there's amazing we time, like entertainment, imaginative dining, character encounters, and more around every corner. A magical vacation at sea awaits on Disney Cruise Line. Doors take us to summers away. Or winter adventures. And afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. The most important thing to realize is the deep eye. In this episode, Eckhart talks about a collective awakening growing on the planet even while the majority of people remain spiritually asleep. He explains most of us are completely identified with our thoughts, the constant compulsive stream of thinking that dominates our awareness and creates a very limited identity. He says beyond thoughts is a more profound and truer self, which Eckhart calls the deep I. We begin to awaken when we recognize the difference between the two. Thank you. Your welcome makes me feel a little emotional. I'm finally back in Toronto. <laughs> We're starting a little late. But, of course, you're already practicing presence as you are sitting there, not waiting for me or anything to happen. That's a very simple spiritual practice. And you might be amazed to discover how often during a normal day you're waiting for something or someone, even spiritually advanced people like yourselves, <laughs> most of you, <laughs> there are always some who didn't come of their own free will. They couldn't say no to someone who said you need to come to this. And if that's you, then you're in for a wonderful awakening or an excruciatingly boring experience. <laughs> And whether it's one or the other depends on something inside you uh, that is not really to do with intellectual understanding or intelligence in the conventional sense of the word, but something else. There's something in you that could be described almost as a faculty that in many humans is still either undeveloped or dormant, like a seed. It's a faculty that uh, is now awakening in a growing number of humans, but in the majority of the planet's population is still dormant, and, and that's just how it is. Now, we are going more deeply tonight into this, what that is in you. And if that has awakened already a little bit, that faculty, then 
you will sense something as you listen to the words, you will sense something within you that recognizes not only what these words point to, because the truth that is within you, which is inseparable from that, what I could call right now the faculty, the truth that is within you, needs to be a little bit awakened to be able to hear what I'm saying. So if you're still totally close to that, then it may be difficult for you to sit here for two hours listening to a man sitting on a chair <laughs> and with nothing else happening. If you went to a movie, you would expect a lot of action in order to sit through one and a half to two hours. And if it is not enough action, then you fall asleep or you walk out. But here, just a man talking, sitting on a chair, there needs to be something extraordinarily important and there needs to be something in you that recognizes that this is extraordinarily important to keep you here. So just, if you are one of those few who came here because you couldn't say no, and after a little while you just can't stand it anymore, please feel free to get up and leave. You will not be judged. <laughs> because everybody here is spiritually advanced. <laughs> it is also possible that you may need to go to the bathroom, <laughs> in which case you could say, I'll be back, I'll be back. <laughs> for those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Doors take us to summers away, or winter adventures, and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential, because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth, investment minimum supply, Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE SIPC. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. So I just uh, to start with, I mentioned the fact that it's surprising how much time humans spend waiting for the next thing. This, they're always looking ahead to the next thing. And that's, if you detect that in yourself in a normal day, uh, that is already a little shift. If you detect that it's an unconscious movement in you, it's a mental movement, some emotions may be connected with it too. It's a mind that, that wants to tell you that there's always the next moment that's more important than this one. That's the implication. It doesn't say that out aloud, but the implied, uh, the mindset that's implicit in that is that the present is of less value than the future or the past. 
There are some people who carry a lot of past weight, and especially as you get older, if you get older and the amount of future that you have shrinks, then th there's a shift instead of looking always to the future because there may not be that much, then you look to the past. And we all know that how old people start talking and thinking about the past more and more and more. And before they reached that stage, they were thinking about the future a lot of the time, uh, missing always something vital. And that vital thing is the present moment, which is just this. So, and that's a kind of awakening when you come to, when your attention moves away from past and future into the present moment. It's a shift. It sometimes you may register it almost as if you were waking up from a dream. And that is why in traditionally in various spiritual traditions, uh, you have the term awakening, spiritual awakening, or the awakening of consciousness. And this is why the very word Buddha, for example, which is a title, it's not, an, it's not anybody's name, it's a title given to someone 2,500 years ago. The title Buddha means, it has a Sanskrit root, which means the one who is awake. So that's the Buddha is awake. Now, normally a person would say, well, what does that mean? I'm awake, obviously, look at me, I'm awake. Uh, so it's not, we're not using awake in a conventional sense of the word. We're using awake in a different sense. You get the first glimpse of this awakening when your attention moves into the present moment. And when your attention moves into the present moment, it sometimes feels to you as if you were stepping out of a dream. Oh, now what kind of a dream? It's a dream of the stream of thinking, the voice in the head, and the voice is failing right now. <coughs> We may have to spend the rest of the evening in silence. <laughs> I have a little book called Stillness Speaks, which I highly recommend. You can, <laughs> we can distribute copies here and you can start reading. <clears throat> when you, let's say you observe somebody else, it's always easier to observe somebody else you can see when they are very much identified with the stream of thinking, that's, I call it the voice in the head. You might have noticed that you also have one. <laughs> the voice in the head, which is a monologue or sometimes a dialogue, it comments on what's going on around you or it takes you completely away from what's going on around you and you're thinking about the past, what happened yesterday what you could have said when you met this unpleasant person, but you failed to say it. And then, you, and then you can replay the scenario in your head and you have a very satisfying experience. <laughs> and then the next thing comes up and then you're in there. And when you observe many people, they live in a kind of, the intention is here, they're not really, they're only present enough not to stumble, bump into furniture, or they, they have, they're vaguely aware of where they are going and, and so on. But 80 to 90% of their attention is in the stream of thinking. And so they go to life. And some people spend the whole day, the whole, the whole, all, all their waking hours in the state of complete identification with that inner voice. And that's, that is the state of, in spiritual terms, we call that unconscious. Unconscious has a different meaning when we use it with reference to the spiritual rather than conventional meaning. The conventional meaning of unconscious is obviously you're knocked out. <laughs> so when you tell somebody, you are unconscious, you say, what are you talking about? <laughs> of course, the thing that's, that's saying, what are you talking about, is the voice in the head that now is actually speaking out 
loud through that person. And there may be an angry reaction, perhaps, because the voice in the head is often accompanied by certain emotions. And the voice in the head says, what is this is all what is that rubbish you're talking about? I'm not I'm not I'm not I'm not unconscious. You can see I'm completely conscious. What is this nonsense? Why do you go to this guy, Eckhart Tolle? <laughs> and that's not that's not a person speaking, it's the conditioned mind speaking through this human being. But this human being who is actually almost completely asleep somewhere in the background doesn't even know that he or she is being possessed by this, we could call it, entity, which is, uh, consists of thought forms, that consists of con the continuous stream of thinking, and the type of thinking you do is, of course, conditioned by your past, your personal past and the past of your environmental and cultural past where you grew up. Uh, what happened to you, and so you have certain types of thought that go through your mind, and after a while, these thought become your identity. You do not exist, or you rather, you don't know that there is in you, and that's the faculty I, st I mentioned a little earlier, you don't know then that there is in you a deeper, more profound identity, a more essential identity, a truer identity than the sense of identity or sense of self that is derived from complete identification with this continuous, incessant and compulsive stream of thinking. So when you discover that there is in you another dimension of consciousness, that is the beginning of the spiritual awakening, or we could call it the awakening of consciousness. That is the beginning of you becoming the Buddha, or in Christian mysticism, the Christ. The Christ in you, the Christ in you is, or Buddha nature is a term that is sometimes used in certain tra Buddhist traditions. They say every, everybody has Buddha nature, your true nature is the Buddha nature. And I call that sometimes the deep I, I meaning I, you, I, as opposed to the surface I. And now this is very interesting. I is a, everybody's favorite word, uh, you, because you, it's probably the word that's used most frequently in the language. How many times during the day do you say I? And what that refers to, usually it refers to your, your likes or your dislikes or your whatever feelings, your, your opinions, uh, your desires, um, whatever you remember, it refers to the mind-made entity, which is the surface I. So the surface I is the conditioned you. The deep I is something that is not yet awakened in many humans, but is a possibility in all humans. The reason why you are here, most of you, is that this deep I, the unconditioned self, if you want to call it that, which the Buddhists, by the way, call the no-self, this unconditioned self is awakening in you. And it has brought you here in order to deepen the awakening that you already sense that's happening in you. So something that is transcendent to who you are as a person is awakening. It is not totally separate from the person. And my favorite analogy is to compare it to a ripple on the surface of the ocean. Let's say you are a ripple on the surface of the ocean. 
It's not a bad analogy because a ripple on the surface of the ocean has a limited lifespan. It goes, oh, it's gone. Of course, you could give it a name, then it has, you give it a kind of identity. Oh, this is, this liberal is called John. Oh, there's John. Oh no, he's dying. Oh no, he's dead. <laughs> <coughs> that was John, he's gone. <laughs> Completely gone. Oh no. Now, perhaps John never realized that John is a ripple on this vast ocean. Perhaps he, John was so identified with his ripple identity that he always looked on the surface of the ocean for whatever fulfillment and desires and how to come make himself happier. He was always looking on the surface, looking at other ripples, liking some, disliking others. <laughs> Disliking more than more than than liking, <laughs> and other ripples say, "Come, if you join me, we can be a bigger ripple together. <clears throat> Let's sign a contract." <laughs> now, if John never realized, then he missed something very important. He missed the very essence of his being. He missed the, his essence identity, and. You are, in a way, that ripple because you exist here as a form identity, undoubtedly. You have a physical form, you have a body. You might have noticed that people say, I have a body. They don't say, I am a body. Well, in the power of now, there's a little meditation where I suggest that people change it to, I am a body, but because I want them to realize the inner body, which is not the physical body that you see. So it would be very rare, though, to hear a person say, um, I am a beautiful body, or I am an overweight body. No, they say, I have. So this, uh, they know that the body is not who they are. And that the body is the first stage of form identity. And for many people, it's extremely important. The, their kind of body is a source of either pride or misery for many people, even young people. The way the body looks and is perceived by yourself and others, it causes a lot of suffering to many people because they are not happy with their body. It be, it's an important part of their sense of identity. And others are very happy with their body because it happens to look better than others other bodies, and that can already be a wonderful thing as long as you're young. This form identity of identifying with the body which is better than other bodies or stronger, that uh, strengthens your identification with the body, which so the body becomes a source of pride and becomes can become the foundation for your identity. Uh, even if you're unhappy with the body, it can become a foundation for your identity. It just happens to be an unhappy foundation. So you have either a happy foundation or an unhappy foundation. And body, of course, you add clothes to your body, so they are very close to the body, so that your clothes become an extension of the body. So you can change things a bit there, because there you have a choice. Uh, and so the body is first the beginning of this mental image of who you are. It's not really so much the physical body, it's the mental image of this is you, in your mind you experience the body. And so it's the, uh, the experience of my body, me, that's me. But that's not the end of the, your form identity. Your form identity is also your psychological form of who you are. That's me. This starts with your name as a child, you're given a name that becomes the receptacle for all the other things that you put in that over the years, 
develop into who you are as a person or as a personality, experiences and memories and stories and achievements, possessions, mind, the idea of mind becomes very important even for a little child. So we are talking, of course, about the, the growth of the ego. That's, you, and you cannot stop it. You cannot stop the growth of the ego in a child. It would be absurd, don't try it, to say to a child that you give the child a car and then another child takes away the car and the child screams and says, this is a terrible, my, my, it's mine, mine. Terrible suffering arises in the child. Now you cannot tell the child, no, this is your ego developing. <laughs> you need to be detached, detached from the car. <clears throat> you need to be as detached as your daddy is detached from his BMW. <clears throat> until somebody scratches it. <laughs> I thought I was detached. <laughs> so possessions become an important part for many humans because they're incorporated into your form identity. But of course, if you don't have possessions, then you, there are many other avenues for your ego to grow and to develop a more uh, enhanced form identity, for example, through achievements or abilities, which are wonderful things, there's nothing wrong with them. You can listen to little children when a child says, I can, I can jump this far, you can't jump, look how, how, how far I can jump. You can, can you do that? No, you can't. The ego grows. I can do something that you can't do. It's a great thing for a child, it feels what the ego is growing, so you can't stop it. My dad has a bigger house than yours. Terrible blow to the other child. <laughs> but if the, other, the ego in the other child is clever and has already developed certain strategies, the other child will say, well, my dad has a friend who knows somebody who has a house that is four times as big as your dad's. <laughs> Thus devaluing the other person's ego identification. <laughs> and this is, sounds a little weird, but it's done, adults do that kind of thing all the time in slightly more subtle ways. And so you see, after a while, you, you, then, you have a personality you are a person, a personality. It has its certain uh, likes and dislikes and opinions, and you have a sense of who you are, a sense of identity, which is the most important thing for humans after shelter and sufficient food. The most important thing for humans is to have a sense of identity, because the question is, who am I? What am I? And this is for young people who grow up in deprived environments where they don't really have anything. They have, feel a great need to identify with some, so they become members of gangs. So you have gang warfare. So you get a little t t tattoo or lots of tattoos. And so you be, you're a member of this gang and then it's completely arbitrary. And then you join another, somebody else joins another gang and they, they kill each other. Now these are rudimentary manifestations of the ego, but the ego can manifest in many, many different ways. S some people have an enormous identification with their sports team. That becomes part of who you think you are. Why? I don't know. Because you happen to live in one particular city, so you associate with that particular team. The, these are rudimentary egos that are not very subtle egos, but these are rudimentary egos that lead, lead to warfare. The, the football hooligans in many countries, they fight each other. It's, these are rudimentary manifestations of egoic conscience, and they love, they love it because well, that's who they are, that's me. Yay! <laughs> Great, it's always gives you ego food, fantastic. And so, 
very interesting to see how much a human being is in the grip, completely possessed by this mind-made conditioned entity. And this is when they say, I, this is what is speaking through them. The conditioned entity is speaking through them. But they might not say I, they might say we. We, you have a personal aspect of ego, that's these are your possessions, your achievements, or your failures, all kinds of things that form the narrative of me in your mind. And you have also the collective aspect of ego, that's the we, when the I becomes a we, and when the I becomes a we, that's a very satisfying thing for the ego because you identify with a collective, which may be a political party, which may be a religion, it may be, uh, as I said, a, f a football team, any kind of collective that you identify with, a nation, nationalism, that is very satisfying to the ego. You can become a part of a, a cult. We become part of a cult, you get, you get a huge ego inflation. And some nations are like cults, the bit less so now than they used to be. There was Soviet communism, there was communist China, there's still North, North Korea, and which is very much like the entire nation becomes a cult. So every human is in the grip of that, and a significant part of their identity is linked to, to the collective. And then it looks as if those humans had overcome their ego because within the uh, limited sphere of the collective, they operate beautifully and they help each other. And they, they sacrifice, they, they work for hours without pay and they, they do everything. And these become, become completely egoless. Isn't that wonderful? In this cult, these people are so egoless. Unfortunately, the cult itself is one gigantic ego. So the personal ego has been uh, relinquished and something else has taken the place of the personal ego, which is the collective ego. Now, the personal ego is a huge troublemaker. The personal ego causes a lot of suffering, but the, the collective ego is far worse, potentially. All these, the, the great atrocities that humans perpetrate upon each other, uh, most of them are perpetrated by people who are identified with the collective ego. So you have one group fighting the others, which are the enemies. Especially the collective ego needs enemies to define its identity through it. Because without the other, you lose your identity the egoic identity. You need the other who is not us. Or on a personal level, you need somebody to disagree with. You love somebody to disagree with you because in that struggle to be right and to make somebody else wrong, the ego grows. If everybody agrees with you, who are you? <laughs> everybody shares all your opinions and all your positions and everyone says, yes, absolutely. Who are you? Or let's say people identify racially too with their race. So, and again, you need the other who is not us that sharpens and, uh, your sense of identity again. It's, it's an ultimately an illusory sense of identity. Doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. So let's just imagine you're very much identified with one political party. I won't name any. 
And let's say suddenly the entire country is totally in favor. There's not a single person who is no, not a member of this political party. Who are you suddenly? Nobody. <laughs> because the other is gone. So without the other, you cannot define your identity anymore. Or race, let's say, everybody suddenly is exactly the same skin color, there's no difference. And if you had been strongly identified with your race and suddenly you wake up on this planet where everybody is exactly the same skin color as yours, who are you? You disappear, you go, oh my God, I'm nobody anymore. Because the other has gone. <laughs> The egoic identity needs the otherness of others. It needs to strengthen in their mind the otherness of others in order to enhance their own identity. And on the personal level, the ego does that with very simple things like easy to overlook. I mention that here because these things are obstacles towards the, real, the realization of the essence of who you are, the deep eye. We'll be going into the deep eye, don't worry. So, but what stands in the way of the deep eye? And that is, the, these are things, some things are very, very common that apply almost to everybody. I just mentioned the need to emphasize the, the otherness of others because that defines who you are more. Uh, and that is done, for example, whenever you disagree with somebody then you strengthen the otherness. When you need to be right in an argument, nobody's more unconscious than somebody who is engaged in being right. Let me tell you how it is. <laughs> and you know what, what's happening to that person. That person is identified with a certain thought or group of thoughts. Identified means derives they derive their sense of self from these thoughts. So these thoughts are imbued with self, to use a kind of Buddhist terminology. The thoughts are imbued with the sense of self. They're not just thoughts. They are thoughts that I'm so identified with that I don't know the difference anymore between who I am and these thoughts that are floating around in my mind. I become those thoughts. That is the essence of unconsciousness, and that is the essence of ego. And that's an amazing realization. Every time you are engaged in being right with somebody, it may, may happen occasionally, <laughs> you may notice this either extreme defensiveness or aggression. And when you notice that, that's a wonderful thing to notice because what you're noticing is the ego in you. The need to be right is a distinct, it is destructive of many relationships, intimate relationships. There are many marriages that break down because both partners are completely identified with their mental positions and then they're fighting one mental position against another mental position. Then they don't have no idea what's, what's happening. So, engaged in being right, which means somebody else needs to be wrong. And for many people, to be right becomes more important than the truth. So you would even start to lie, not you, but some. <laughs> you would even start to lie in order to be, continue to be right. That's an amazing thing to discover in yourself, this, the emotion that comes in when you're discussing something. Now, does that mean you let go completely and you say, okay, you're right, I have no opinion, I'm so spiritual, I'm no, no, I, I have no position anymore. Uh, Eckhart said, it's all ego. You won't be able to do that. No, there continue to be mental positions. You, you continue to have, of course, certain viewpoints and certain opinions. Every, this part of who you are as this form identity. But you don't, you're no longer totally identified. You can, it's a total shift in a discussion, for example, when two, two people are not identified with their mental positions, they can put forward, this is how I see it, and that, and that, and that. How do you see it? 
complete opposite. That, that, that. Okay. So whether or not something comes of it, perhaps they're out of the opposing positions, some new synthesis arises, if you're truly able to listen to the other, perhaps you both come to a new realization that perhaps each person has a little bit of the truth, but, but no person has the whole truth. That would be an amazing thing that would be part of humans living more consciously instead of needing somebody to be wrong in order to be right. So that's already one important thing that can happen as you become more conscious. But this little thing, while you're engaged in a discussion, needing the other to be wrong because you need to be right to strengthen your sense of self, the moment you notice this energy behind the need to be right, then that is the ego in you. But the fact that you notice it means you're no longer totally in the grip of it. Now, where does that come from? This, the ability to, to notice the ego in you when it appears, well, that, is, that is the awakening of the unconditioned consciousness that we could call awareness, we could call presence. That is something that arises from the depth of you that is not part of the stream of thinking, that is the ocean becoming aware of the ripple, and then the ripple becoming aware of the ocean. There's an arising awareness in you that that's not who you are. And that's an amazing liberation, because people who need to be right, they are like trapped in their own minds in a very limited sense of identity. Another one that's very common, I'll just mention it because it appears so often in human beings, that, that prevents you from realizing who you, the transcendent dimension to who you are, which is the most important thing in your entire life, is to realize this deep I, the transcendent dimension to who you are. And so another obstacle that is very common is certain tendency automatic kind of thinking, compulsive and automatic types of thought, a very frequent one is, I call it complaining. Complaining is, it starts even with a little thing like, uh, you're waiting here and it's 10 past seven and I haven't arrived yet. <laughs> There's a certain thoughts go through your head, why can't he be on time? Why can't? Why, why is he keeping us waiting here? Keeping me waiting, me. <laughs> you even there. You could already have a narrative arising in your mind that says it's not just that that he hasn't arrived yet. That's a simple fact. But you could have a spin a narrative around it, and the narrative says. Why can't he have, have the decency of being on time? <laughs> so you have got a huge thing already built up in your mind. <laughs> and you don't know what you're doing it. Forgive them for they know not what they do. <laughs> and once you start with the thought like that, why can't he have the decency that will lead to another similar thought? And before you know it, you are trapped in an antagonistic attitude towards this person who is keeping you waiting, keeping me waiting, me. No. <laughs> so, and, and then that can color the entire interaction after when this person finally arrives, this unhappy, uh, luckless person finally arrives, and then... <laughs> The assassin doesn't know that you've already created a huge uh, mental phantom <laughs> of who that person is. And then you're no longer meeting that person, you're meeting your mental phantom. So you're, you're still, you're, yes, you see this human being, but there's a huge veil between you and him. And that veil is the mental phantom that you have created. It's a narrative. And that narrative provided food for your ego. That narrative emphasized the otherness of the other, and the ego loves it. And then once you've done that, in, then you go home, and then you pick up the phone, and then you tell the story of what happened. 
to somebody else. It, and it blows up, it grows even more. And then the other person, oh, that's nothing. You know what happened to me? Now, there's always, an, there's always an element of the need to be superior that's concealed, but the need for superiority is always part of this egoic, these egoic strategies. So even when you're pronouncing judgment, you're creating these strange narratives about uh, assumed motivations and uh, all kinds of things about this other person. There's always there's something in the background, and that is the my thought is suddenly stopped. <laughs> There's something in the, the thought stopping is a wonderful thing, by the way. <clears throat> we'll come to that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop all your thoughts. <laughs> So there's always there's something in the background which is the need to be superior that's conceived. You might not even always see it very clearly that it's a, there's a, it, it contains a need to be superior because whenever you pronounce judgment upon somebody through a narrative, it implies that you are superior because you are pronouncing judgment about this person. This is how it, so the, it is an implication of superiority. The need to be right is an enormous need to be superior to the other, because if you're right, you elevate yourself to a superior position, obviously, by implication. Related to that, another very common ego strategy is uh, complaining. Complaining about all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Other people, that's a favorite one what they, that's related to what I just said earlier, but what other people did, but should not have done, failed to do, or any kind of, any judgment, they, they, they should have done this, but they didn't do it, they failed to do that. If you're complaining about other people, complaining about situations you find yourself in, complaining about what you're doing, but you're doing it, but while you're doing it, you're complaining about doing it. <laughs> Very unconscious. In other words, it's a terrible way to live. If you, are, if you are engaged in an activity, and mentally you're complaining about being engaged in this activity, it's a terrible mental-emotional dysfunction, but it's not recognized as such, and it provides food for the ego. <laughs> so be very careful that whenever you are doing something, that there's not in the background a complaining entity that doesn't really want to be doing this. Why do I have to do this? Well, it's always me who's doing <laughs> And so you can, the ego grows in that, and even then there's an element of superiority that, because you're superior towards what you're doing. You're, when you complain about a situation, a, a place where you are, there's something wrong here, you've just, wherever, you, there's, a, there's something not right, the, immediately there's an element of superiority because you can pronounce judgment about something. Oh, suddenly if you've risen, elevated yourself. And complaining is a very common thing, and even some of you may still occasionally mentally complain about your life. Oh, not just other people, you can complain about your life. That's even better. <laughs> you can go on for hours, days, weeks, and years, and in your mind, have develop a complaining voice about how effed up your life really is. <laughs> And the, the ego loves even that, because you're, you're, you become the judge, and it's awful. And you have an enemy. And for some people, the enemy is 
weirdly, very weird, weird. The enemy is what they call my life. They're so unhappy with it that the, my life becomes their enemy. I hate my life. <laughs> and I know exactly who to blame for my life. <laughs> it started when I was born, that's why it's all. That's where it all started going wrong. <laughs> and of course, obviously everybody has had their share of suffering. There's no human being who has not had their share of suffering of various kinds. I don't know if it's news to you that you are not the only one who is suffering, <laughs> but this might be difficult to believe because if you, especially if you only relate to other people or predominantly you're young, and you predominantly relate to others, not in person, but through Facebook, then you will find it difficult to believe that they are also suffering. <laughs> because on Facebook it shows they are not suffering at all, because they're <laughs> very happy. <laughs> Everybody's happy except me. And that means you need to polish your Facebook page too. <laughs> and so you go to a restaurant and then you take a photo of your food. <laughs> so you, you strengthen the image, the mental image of you, and you project it out into the world. You couldn't do that before this miraculous technology happened. You had to project a mental image in your mind only and maybe a little bit in your immediate surroundings, but now you have a polished, you polish this mental image of who you are and you send it out into the world. Great progress. <laughs> Selfies are helpful too. You're no longer just yourself and you begin to have a relationship with yourself. This, this, the the mind-made image of me, the narrative of me, and you would be surprised, or maybe not surprised, how many people have a very complicated, uneasy, and even very unpleasant relationship with themselves. And, and they, there's a self-talk often in the head in many, many people that is so self-critical and negative. If you lived with somebody who voiced those thoughts that your, your mind is creating on a daily basis, you would have left this person a long time ago. It's, just, it's intolerable, I don't want to be with this negative person that's telling me all that stuff. I'm leaving, goodbye. But you can't do it with um, their style. You can go to another continent and the, your mind goes with you. <laughs> Amazing. So be careful with complaining. Unless there's something that can be changed, then say, please take some action. There's something wrong here. The toilet won't flush. Action is needed. That's, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of complaining, but the, the useless complaining that only serves the ego. And this, whether you do it in your mind only or out aloud, doesn't matter. It's the same kind of pattern. So if you catch yourself in any situation saying how, how bad this is, this should be different. Whenever you're waiting somewhere, there's, the complaining means you're, you're not present, but you're waiting. If you were waiting for something without complaining whatsoever, you wouldn't be waiting anymore. You would just be present. So waiting means this moment isn't as good as it should be. It implies that some next moment is going to be better and you want to be there already. So very interesting about how complaining, how waiting arises. And if you observe yourself when the arising of any negative state in you, any form of unhappiness 
which is a generic term which I use for all. Unhappiness could be anything from mild irritation to extreme anger or extreme sadness. There's a whole range of unhappiness that you can experience. And as a spiritual practice, one of the best spiritual practices is to observe in you, in any given situation, the arising of any form of unhappiness and see where it comes from. Where does this come from? And you need to be, there needs to be some awareness in you so that I feel unhappy. I'm standing in line at the supermarket and I'm beginning to feel unhappy. Why? I'm beginning to feel unhappy because these people are so inefficient and this woman, <laughs> this woman is talking to this client when she should be. Uh, to, uh, going through there, and why? Why is she? Does he want to cash in those vouchers? Why? Why has she got fifty vouchers and keeping everybody waiting? Does, doesn't he have any decency? And people, and you're beginning to feel very unhappy. And and finally, when you get, I'm not. I'm not coming back here. I can tell you that. And then you leave, and another 30 minutes you're in. <laughs> this is unhappiness, but it's not recognized when you're totally unconscious. You love it when you're totally unconscious. The ego loves it. The body doesn't, because the body doesn't get, gets affected by any negative state. It disrupts the, fun, the otherwise harmonious functioning of the body, the heartbeat, the circulation of the blood, all kinds of functions. Now, if you were, if you could wake up. In the moment of the arising of unhappiness, you could say, oh, okay, moment, I'm feeling, beginning to feel very irritated here. Why? Well, the first thing the mind would say, well, because these people are so inefficient. <laughs> but that's not the cause. That is not what's making you unhappy. What's making you unhappy is the narrative that these people are so inefficient, and which is thought movement in your mind that interprets the situation in a particular way. It's a narrative that your mind creates unconsciously. This narrative produces emotion, and that emotion is unhappiness. Then you can experiment. How would I experience this situation if I did not add any narrative to it, my mind? You've got plenty of time because the, the lineup is moving so slowly. <laughs> so you might as well experiment. So you experiment, how would I experience this situation without adding the unnecessary baggage of narrative or storytelling to it? Okay, let's experiment. And there you stand, you've just let go of the baggage, and suddenly you realize the irritation is gone, this moment is as it is. You haven't added anything to it. A huge weight was lifted off your shoulders. You haven't, you have not created unhappiness or suffering out of this situation. Isn't that amazing? And then you go into another situation. It's very, it will be very similar. And you say, how does it? Where does the unhappiness arise? Is it in the situation, or is it in the voice that's telling me that there's something wrong with this situation, which is the present moment always? So the voice that argues with what is, is part of the conditioned mind, is part of the ego. And then you come to a point, awareness grows, and you're no longer totally in the grip of this unconscious mind movement. And then increasingly, you become free in situations that before would have produced enormous amount of unhappiness of whatever kind, you become free and you can face situations in that state of absolute clarity. This is what is. Because it already is. What is the point of arguing with the isness of the present moment? It is. Of course, some situations require you to take action. Yes. And then you look at the situation and there's a moment. Now, this is probably the most important part of all this. There's a moment where you look at a situation, you face a situation, not through thought, but through aware, awareness or presence, which means you, you are able to look at it, look, not necessarily visually, but it might also include visual perception of whatever the situation is, 
But looking in a wider sense, this means you give it attention. And this attention is awareness. And in that awareness that enables you to be with the situation and look at it, thought, thinking, has subsided. But you have not become unconscious in the conventional sense. Thinking has not subsided because you have deadened yourself to thinking because you've had six whiskeys. This is not why thinking has subsided. That's not the way to go. You're falling below thought. We don't want to fall below thought. We've been there. We spent two million years below thought. That's fine. We've come out of that. The ability to think arose was a incredible, wonderful evolutionary development. But of course, there was a price to pay and had a huge downside. With like everything in this world of polarities, so thinking was a wonderful thing until over thousands of years, thinking took you over so completely that you no longer realized the essence of who you are that far transcends thinking. That is the, what's the big downside of thinking. And now we don't need to abandon thinking, that would be absurd, but we need to be able to think instead of being at the mercy of our thinking, which is unconsciousness. People say, I think, but in most cases, unless they are awakening or awakened, it's not really true. They don't think. I think it implies that, that there's some volition, that you are doing something. But it's as untrue as to say, I'm beating my heart. You can't, you're not doing it. It happens to you. And to most people, they're not thinking. Their thinking happens to them. They are being thought. <laughs> they are not thinking. And they're so identified with the thoughts that they are trapped in the movement of thought. And that's the ego, and that's unconsciousness. So when you have developed the ability, and this awakening is, you realize that there is another dimension in you that is not thought, and that is vaster than thought. It's not so much that he is thought and he is not thought. It's more like he is thought on the surface. This is why I use the ripple analogy. He is thought on the surface, and he is a vastness underneath it that is consciousness. So there's a difference between consciousness, awareness, and thought. Thought arises out of awareness, but awareness or consciousness is much vaster than thought. And so if you can meet any situation or any human being with the ability to look without immediately going into thought, that means you're awakening. And also means you're beginning to transcend who you are as a person or personality. It doesn't mean it disappears completely, but you are beginning to transcend it. It's, this is why I sometimes call that the transcendent dimension to who you are, or the transcendent dimension of consciousness. And when I say the transcendent dimension of consciousness sounds like a deeply philosophical and abstract concept, but it's not at all, because it begins with a simple thing like standing in the lineup at the supermarket or not add unnecessary baggage to that situation. So now we have the transcendent dimension of consciousness is no longer some mental abstract abstraction that belongs in the realm of philosophy. No, it's something very vital and practical and immediate and can be realized within yourself in any situation, in any given moment. So the transcendent dimension of consciousness is when there's a cessation of compulsive thinking and a little gap of no thinking. In that little gap of no thinking, you haven't fallen below thinking, you've risen above thinking. And that is the next evolutionary step for humanity, is to rise above thinking. And once you have risen above thinking, then you know that that dimension exists in you. Of course, then, yes, you come back into thinking. 
then you fluctuate between moments of stepping out of thought, like now, <laughs> and thinking again. So at first you have the little compartment of no thought, but it doesn't stay like that. It becomes incorporated more into your life, where you're able to frequently step back from thought and then use thought again. Step back from thought into awareness and use thought again. You're no longer used by thought, you are now using thought. And then dysfunctional thoughts tend to dissolve after a while when you recognize them as really very dysfunctional. So dysfunctional states, when you recognize them as dysfunctional, you don't want them anymore, and then they tend to dissolve. You don't even need to do anything. And then your thinking becomes more powerful and focused. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Eckhart Tolle, Essential Teachings, the podcast. You can follow these essential teachings on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, go to Spotify and follow this podcast. Join us next week for more enlightened teachings from Eckhart Tolle. Thank you for listening. Doors take us to summers away or winter adventures and afternoon getaways. Your dedicated Fidelity Advisor can help you open those doors by working with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential because doors were meant to be opened. Visit fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimum supply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.